we are looking at working and resting. And today, uh, this weekend, is the Labor Day weekend. And Labor Day has been celebrated in Canada since. Anybody know the date? Any Wikipedia experts? Because I had to look it up. 1894. And Labor Day came out of a series of protests with a little bit of violence and protesting primarily uh, the working conditions of ordinary workers. And so this was a pushback against working conditions, hours, even slave labor or even child labor, and uh, an establishing a, a day set aside to remember the ordinary worker and to remember that ordinary workers need rest. Right, Doug? So we need to rest. So Labor Day was created for Doug and others like him. I would say something else, but I'll stop. So that's what we inherited, and that's what we have. And so I hope over this weekend, besides just enjoying maybe a day off, um, you'll also reflect on the need to rest. So as we close out summer and as we begin a new season, last week we talked about working well, biblically working well. Today we're going to talk about resting well. So last week, quick recap. Uh, I wanted to try and convince you in some measure, biblically speaking, that work is good. Work isn't ultimate. We're not ultimately made for work, but work in itself is good. That's not to say that your job is enjoyable. That's a whole different scenario. Your job might not always be enjoyable, uh, but work that we do is good. Even if it's not paid, it's still good. Work is good. The New Testament tells us that work provides us with an opportunity to be generous to others. Whether that's paid work, that then we can share some of that uh, profit with other people, or it's volunt a voluntary work where we share our time, work gives us an opportunity to be generous. In that sense, work is good, and it's good to work. But work is more than that. It's not just utilitarian. Work is also a gift from God. In the Old Testament, in the Genesis narrative, even before the word work and curse came together, because that's what we often associate with work, right? Uh, before work and curse came together, work was present in the garden before sin. That's the narrative that we find. That God actually sets up Adam and Eve to be stewards of all creation. He gives them a task. He gives them work to do. In this sense, work is good. In fact, we might say he gave them three full-time jobs, creation care, community building, and communion with God. So if we're struggling in our work, when we begin to align ourselves with those three full-time jobs, right? If we can find that in our work, creation care, community building, communion with God, then our work is somewhat redeemed and it becomes good. We sense that goodness. But even more than that, even more than the utilitarian response to work that is good and the fact that God has given us work to do, God himself is portrayed as a worker. And this is kind of revolutionary. Maybe we don't realize that. 
But in, in many ancient cultures, the gods, the deities, were not the workers. That would be beneath them. That's why they created the humans or had the humans come to be their slaves. Not so with the God of the Bible. And not so when Jesus comes and calls us co-workers. We are co-workers with Christ. What an amazing thing. And so the God of the Old Testament, New Testament, the God that we worship, reveals himself as a worker. God even takes up uh, worker images. So God is our shepherd. God is a potter. God is a king. God is a midwife. God is, all these work-related images, God inhabits to reveal himself. And in doing so, elevates the status of work. And so work is good because God is a worker. And if God works, then work must be a good thing, even though sometimes we don't like it, <laughs> even though sometimes we don't like our job, even though sometimes we don't like our volunteer jobs. But there is a goodness in work, and when we find that, when we lean into it. But not all work is good. In fact, in the New Testament, we find an interesting thing that Paul does, and he associates three eternal values with work that's good, and that is this, faith, hope, and love. And when we work from faith, hope, and love, then we experience the goodness of work. But I ended the sermon last week, if you remember, if you're here, with a bit of a warning. And the warning is this. We cannot find our identity in our work, right? We can find lots of things. We can find fulfillment. We can find opportunities to serve. We can find a sense of satisfaction even in the work that we do, whether paid or unpaid. But we cannot, we must not find our identity in our work. That's a terribly dangerous thing to do. And we fall into the trap all the time. We fall into the trap and we find that out when we suddenly lose our job. And we say, who, who am I? What am I doing here? Some people, when they retire, they begin to question their whole identity because their whole identity has been wrapped up in their work. I know my dad, and I've mentioned this before, he was a worker all his life. He really didn't develop any relationships or any hobbies or any interests outside his work. That was his identity. And when the mine collapsed and he was forced into retirement early, he really struggled. You know what he did? He made muffins. Drove my mom crazy. He took over the kitchen. Started baking and baking. He made muffins and shortbread. The shortbread was good, right, Kira? Yeah, we love the shortbread. Uh, but my dad didn't know what to do with himself. He had a crisis of identity because identity was tied to his work. And we should never expect our work to provide what only God can provide. And that is our identity. And that's why we need rest. That's why we need this balance, and that's what we're going to talk about today. From the beginning of creation, rest is the counterpoint to work. work rest is the necessary rhythm uh, that, that is blended into work in order to bring and sustain life. This work-rest rhythm, there's never a balance with work and rest. We strive for balance. There's no balance. But there can be a rhythm of work and rest, and it's essential and it's essential, especially if we're going to find our identity. So, three things I want to say about rest. There's so much we could explore, and I hope this just gives you a taste 
to explore more. We're going to come to the passage in Hebrews chapter 4 in a few minutes, and it's kind of a complicated passage. I'm using it more as a springboard today to talk about the larger theology of rest that we find in Scripture. Here's my first point. Rest in the Bible is a pattern. That's where we first find it. It's a pattern. Genesis chapter 2 says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so there was established this pattern. Six days work, one day rest. And in many ways, this is an explanatory note. This is an explanation for why in Jewish families, they would observe Sabbath every week. So you can imagine in the Jewish family, and uh, little Johnny is saying to his dad, didn't we just do this last week? Why are we doing it again? And the father says, well, little Johnny, or little Doug, whatever his name was, um, this is why we do it, because God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh, and so should we. And so there's this pattern that's established, this rhythm that's established that uh, is infused into creation and refused into, into human community. And so it's interesting, and many people have pointed this out, that the first full day of creation we find in the creation narrative the first full day of creation for Adam and Eve was not a work day. The first full day, according to the narrative, was actually a day of rest. Why? Well, here's the important point. It reminds us that we are made for God and not for work. That's the most important point. That actually our identity, Sabbath reminds us that our identity is found in God and not in work. When we rest, we move from that time of doing, the time of productivity, to a time of simply being and belonging. And if we don't find rest, if we don't create time for rest, we will not feel that sense of belonging, that sense of being. And so Sabbath rest, this rest in the Bible, was meant to be a gift to us so that we might know to whom we belong, not to our jobs. It feels like that. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. We're driven by this tyrant of work. Even sometimes in the church, if you're volunteering and you're into it for many, many years, it begins to feel like this burden that you've got to bear, right? And yet rest reminds us, stepping back reminds us that we're made for God and not for work. So that's my first point. Sabbath rest is about our Identity. You and I are not just worker drones. We are not simply cogs in the system. That we have an identity, and that identity is found in God. And we experience that identity when we allow ourselves to be still and know that God is present. Okay, so rest is a pattern. But it's much more than that. As we journey through the Bible, we also discover that rest is a principle. It's a principle that works itself out in many fascinating ways. And this is where I get kind of excited. I could spend a lot of time, I won't, on the principles of Sabbath that we find all throughout Scripture. One of them is this. In the seventh year, according to, you know, as we read in Exodus, in the seventh year, the Israelites were meant to let the land rest. 
So here's the principle being worked out. Let the land rest. Let the land have a rest in the seventh year. What an incredible act of faith that would be. Can you imagine for a moment as a farmer and you're working the land and every year you just don't know what the crop's going to be, right? But this year is coming up the seventh year and you're just to let the land rest and trust that God will provide, right? It's a benefit for the land. It's also an act of trust, an act of faith on your part. So Exodus 23 says this, For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie, unplowed and unused. Then, this is interesting, then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So it's not just about ecology. It's not just about faith. It's also about justice. The Sabbath principle leads us to justice. We see this worked out in Leviticus chapter 25 when it starts to talk about the year of Jubilee. So after seven times seven of these Sabbath years, proclaim a 50th year. This is our celebration. We should call it the Jubilee year, right? And we're all going to have a rest this year. Actually, we've got a very busy fall season. So please sign up to volunteer. But Leviticus chapter 25 talks about this year of Jubilee. Listen to what it says. Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. This year of jubilee was meant to be a time when slaves were freed, when debts were canceled, when land was returned. It was meant to prevent greed and empire building It was meant to prevent long-term oppression. It was meant to prevent generational slavery. It was meant to provide economic stability and ecological sustainability. It was meant to provide hope. You see how Sabbath is not just an observance one day a week, but Sabbath works it out in this principle, this principle of justice. I don't know if we think about Sabbath in that way or rest in that way. Let me give you one example that might be a little bit closer to home, and that is offering. (laughs) We pass around the offering plate here. We have options for giving online, and this is often the way that churches explain offering. We've got bills to pay, and we need your money, so give to God, or else you're not a very good Christian. Not quite those words. We don't have that on our website, but that's kind of the intonation, right? This idea that God needs your money. I just want to say right now, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't, right? That's not what we do when we give this act of worship in offering. What we're doing when we carve out a little bit or a lot of our paycheck and give it to something else, whether it's the church or someone, what we're saying is we're taking a rest. We're taking a Sabbath. We're not maximizing our profits to the very edges, That's another uh, principle of Sabbath that we find in the Old Testament. When the farmers harvested, leave the edges. Don't maximize things to the edges. Leave some for the poor. Leave some for the needy. Don't, Don't think that you have to maximize your profit every time. And so offering does this for us too. Same with our time. 
We, we, we're so busy in our lives. And to say, I'm just going to spend time going for a coffee with someone, sit down and listen to their story. We need to do that more. That's, a, that's an act of Sabbath. And so we rest when we hold back, when we don't consume it all, right? And that's what Sabbath is teaching us because Sabbath is about justice. So rest is a pattern, teaching us that Sabbath is about identity. Rest is a principle, teaching us that Sabbath is about justice. Last thing is this. Oops. Rest is also, though, a promise. And that's what we find in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews 4, as we read it through, you could see that idea of pattern. In chapter 4, verse 4, uh, the writer to the Hebrews talks about the creation, the creation pattern that's established, but also says that that's not it. That's not all. That that pattern is established, but there's still a rest that remains for the people of God. But he also talks about the principle of rest. In the passage in Hebrews chapter 4, he talks about Joshua and the promised land, and the promised land being the, the embodiment of this principle of rest. And that some people, because of their lack of faith, those spies that didn't believe that they could go in, right, they didn't enter into that rest. And so there's a warning there, but the idea is this, that that's not it, that's not all that there's still a promised rest for the people of God. So even with the pattern, even with the principle, there remained this promise. God's promise of entering his rest, the passage says, still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. What an interesting warning the writer to the Hebrews gives. Uh, William Barclay, he translates it like this. Beware lest you think that you have arrived too late in history ever to enjoy the rest of God. Because when is the time to enter God's rest according to the passage? Today. Today is the time. Sometimes we think of the past and we think of the great works that God has done. Next week, we're going to be celebrating the past. And some of us might think, oh, I missed it. No, you haven't. <laughs> no, I haven't. The rest of God and the time to enter that rest is today. How is that possible? Because ultimately, and as we look back at the passage in Hebrews, the rest of God is embodied in Jesus. The rest of God is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And when by faith we accept Jesus as we enter into that, we also enter into Sabbath. And that's why Jesus says this. Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. I don't know if there's a, a burden in our hearts, a heaviness, sometimes trying to measure up, trying to, to, uh, to earn God's favor or earn God's pleasure. And Jesus says, let it go. Let it go. Come to me, and I will give you rest. The rest of God is found in Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath pattern and the Sabbath principle is found in Christ. Well, what does that mean for us today? 
I'm not advocating this morning a return to strict Sabbath observance, like one day in seven. If that's a habit or a pattern that you can incorporate into your life, that's wonderful. And if you want to know more about what I think about uh, the Sabbath day and where it landed and where it went and how we observe it, I'd love to have coffee sometime with you. I'm not going to go through that right now. But I remember when I was growing up in a very strict uh, assembly, brethren assembly, uh, Sabbath was a big deal. Uh, Sabbath was the Sunday, and we were restricted from doing all kinds of things. But it got weird really fast. Like there was one family I went over to, and uh, their Sabbath observance was that they could listen to music as long as it didn't have a drum beat. Because, you know, the drum beat and you start to move a little bit, and, and then that's breaking the Sabbath. Well, it's just weird. I mean, Christians are weird sometimes, let's be honest. But that's super weird. And so we have to be careful not to fall back into the Sabbath being our ruler. Remember Jesus, he was known as a Sabbath breaker. He would rather do good on the Sabbath than keep the rules. And what did he say in the end? Man wasn't made, or man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift. It was meant to be this rest that we enter into. So let me ask some questions as we wrap up the message today. First of all is this. Are we cultivating a pattern of rest? Are we finding a time just to be still, a time of being, a time of belonging? Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, was my professor of pastoral ministry when I was at Regent College. And one of the things that he said when he was teaching us, he said, the busy pastor is the lazy pastor. And we're like, what? I thought that was the whole goal, to show people how busy you were all the time. That's the measure, that's the pastoral standard, right, Samuel? That's what we were supposed to do. And so he said, the busy pastor is the lazy pastor because you've allowed the demands of the congregation, of the community, of the, the week-to-week service to set your calendar. And he said, here's what you do. You create margins. Now I'm giving away trade secrets here. So this is, I got to be careful what I say. You create margins and you do so by taking your calendar and actually booking in times. You don't have to tell people that uh, what that appointment is for. You don't have to say, I've got an appointment on Monday to take my daughter for lunch. Right, Kira? So you don't have to tell people. When people say, hey, can I see you on Monday? Sorry, I have an appointment. So now when you hear me say that, you'll be going, huh, where is, what is he really doing? But what his point was, is you have to intentionally create margins in your life. No one's going to give it to you. It's not going to happen by accident. You have to create time and space, place to simply be, simply belong. And that's what we need. How are you doing at that? Are you cultivating a pattern of rest? Wayne Mueller says this, If we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our over-busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath our pneumonia, our cancer, our heart attack, our accidents create Sabbath for us. So his point is, do it now. Uh, create time for rest, and that's so important. So that's the first question I have. Second is this, are we working to bring the principle of rest to others? Are we working for justice from a place of rest? Walter Brueggemann said this, Sabbath is a practical divestment so that neighborly engagement, rather than production and consumption, defines our lives. How are we able to love our neighbor if we don't create space to know our neighbor? 
right? We need to create this space. We need to have this Sabbath. And out of the place of rest, we can work for justice, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Third question is this. Are we resting ultimately in the promise of Jesus? I know in this room, many of us here, maybe most of us here, have have made a confession of faith. We believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we would call ourselves Christian. But even among the Christian community, the followers of Jesus, sometimes I think we find ourselves working for our salvation still. We think that we've got to behave better and live better and somehow please God and earn his favor. Sometimes we feel that, you know, our prayers aren't good enough or we can't take communion because we're we're not good enough to take communion. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is come because you're weary and heavy burdened. Come because you're sinful. Come and rest. Are we resting in Jesus? Are we resting in Jesus? Because ultimately, Sabbath is about salvation. Sabbath, says Shelley Miller, isn't about resting perfectly. It's about resting in the one who is perfect. That's what Sabbath is about. So Hebrews chapter 4, it reminds us of the urgency of entering into God's rest. Today's the day. Today is the day, the present reality of this perpetual invitation to rest in Jesus. We spend a lot of energy worrying about our family, our job, maybe our health, maybe the state of the world, maybe our future, and we're invited today to rest. It doesn't mean that we don't act, that we, that we don't try and, and sort out and we don't you know, go to the doctor or those things but we need to do so from a place of trust, from a place of rest. Trust leads to peace, and peace leads to wise action in the world. So before we act, before we experience peace, we need to learn to rest well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the way that we see this witness, this testimony of Scripture leading us to your Son, We thank you that in him we find our rest. Father, we believe. We pray that you'd strengthen our faith, strengthen our trust, so that as we face the many complications of the world around us, we do so not from a place of anxiety, but rather from a place of rest, trusting in you, leaning into you, even as we walk in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.